<clears throat> we're going to transition to the scriptures this morning, um, and we're going to be looking at the book of Ezra. Um, we want to we want to we want to look at a, a moment, a transitional moment in the book of Ezra. Um, if you're you're unfamiliar with uh, the story, uh, God's people Israel were were um, taken into captivity. Um, in the year 603 BC by the Babylonians, uh, 603 and then again 586, uh, taken into captivity by the Babylonians and were were kept there for 70 years in Babylon before they were allowed to return. And the first wave of the return is recorded in Ezra 1 uh, through 6. The people of Israel come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. Um, The second wave is recorded here in Ezra 7. Um, through the rest of the book. Um, it's the second wave where they're going to come back and, and uh, we're going to talk about this one. And then the third wave when they come back uh, under a guy named Nehemiah who was appointed as governor and he rebuilds the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Um, but this, this passage that we're in, we're going to be in Ezra 7, uh, is unique for a lot of uh, reasons. One of them being that this is the point where the actual person, Ezra, takes over the, the narrative. Up until this point, it's been told as a third-party narrator telling the events and reporting things. But here we have the first person recording of Ezra, which picks up in verse 28, um, where he starts telling how he did what he did. Um, and so... We're going we're gonna to get into the text, we're going to talk a little bit about the history and the events and all of those things, but our primary theme as we've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah is rebuilding. Um, how do we rebuild something that has been broken or lost or damaged? Um, how do we, and when we go through our lives and we are confronted with the reality that things break down, how do we rebuild them? And we've been kind of exploring that on a personal level. Um, but Ezra is going to take us to a, a, a corporate level, to a, a relationship level, to a, uh, to a community level, to a national level, and talking about rebuilding, how do we rebuild uh, what is lost? And for the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, that was a big deal, rebuilding what had been lost, because what had been lost was what God had promised that would last and so they're they are trying to get themselves back into the shape that God wants them to be. And I'm just going to start with Ezra chapter 7 and verse 1. I'm going to read a couple of verses and then we're going to uh, we're going to uh, pray again. Um, <clears throat> now after this in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Mariot, Mer- um, the son of Zer- the son of Zer- Zerah. Yeah, whatever. There's a bunch of them. All right, verse five: son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And just join me in a word of prayer. Father, once again we come to your word. Lord, we seek to take these these words on a page, these written words, and through them to see uh, Jesus, the living word, Lord, we ask that your spirit would open our ears and our eyes, our hearts, our hands, our feet, 
um, to know and to believe and to do what you have called us uh, to do. We pray this as we look uh, to these words, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we might see you, Jesus, that we might give glory to you, our Father. Amen. Uh, Artaxerxes uh, is an interesting person. Uh, this story opens up in the, the reign of Artaxerxes. Um, uh, the, the term peaceful transition of power has been in the news a lot uh, recently. Um, Artaxerxes kind of the definition of a non-peaceful transition of power. Uh, he killed his father, blamed his brothers, killed them, then told everybody he was great. Um, that was what Artaxerxes did. That was how he gained power. So um, when we talk about a peaceful transition, we should always just pray, thank you, God, we don't live in Persia. Um, so <clears throat> Artaxerxes came to power in 465 BC, um, and he was a member of the Patricide Fratricide Party. Um, and, uh, and he had a lot of issues that went on in his reign. One of the things that happened almost immediately after he took power um, was that the, the Egyptians revolted, um, and he had to send generals down to Egypt. They did it with the help of the Greeks. The Athenians were um, still a little upset with Artaxerxes because his grandfather and father had fought wars against the Greeks, and so um, they tried to kind of help the Egyptians revolt. Uh, that didn't work out for them. Um, but Artaxerxes needed, um, he needed to have, uh, uh, Eric, there's something buzzing in the sound system. If we can kill anything that's not my voice because it's going to distract me. And you know what happens when I get distracted. Bad things. Um, but uh, but Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes was attempting to um, secure his southern borders. And as he was doing that, um, it made good sense that Israel which was the, the southern part of uh, what is today Southwest Asia, um, that part of Israel be secured and controlled. Um, so that, uh, And what better way to secure it than to send the people that lived there uh, back and to give them a purpose and a reason. And so he sends this guy Ezra. And I want to talk a little bit about Ezra, but not too much because we'll, we'll see him a number of times, but his qualifications as a leader. First of all, Ezra is a descendant of Aaron, so he's a right priest. He's the, he's the proper priest. Um, and so his job as a priest is uh, to be an intercessor for the people. But he's not just a priest. We also find out that he's a scribe. And not just any scribe, not just anybody that can write. Um, and being a scribe was, was skill enough in those days. It was a, uh, a hard time to learn to, uh, to write. Literacy in those days most of the time just meant that you could read, not that you could write. Writing was reserved for a very small percentage of the population. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to 5% of the population could write at all. And those that were skilled in it were, were even fewer than those. Not only is he a scribe, but he's a scribe skilled in the law, the Torah, the teachings of a God that had been given to Moses. Um, in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, he is well versed in these. Ezra is kind of the prototype of the Hebrew scholar. He is, um, in fact, most of the, the Jewish groups that became rabbinic Judaism looked up to Ezra as kind of the, the he was the best of the best. And lastly, he, he, uh, in verse 6, it says that he had favor of the king. The king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. 
So Ezra has uh, three basic qualifications for being a leader. He's got the right descent. He's the son of Aaron. He's got the right education. He's a scribe and a student of Torah. Um, But he also has a good reputation among those that are not of his people. Uh, the, The Persian king had absolutely no interest in whether Ezra was a student of the Torah or not. He had no interest in whether Ezra was a priest or not. What he cared about was Ezra going to lead a rebellion. If he was, then we don't put him in charge. Seems like a pretty profound but simple idea. All right, don't put rebellious people in charge of your southern flank. Um, It's just a a great idea. Um, And so Ezra has a reputation that he is he is going to be uh, a worthwhile servant of God, but also a worthwhile subject of the king. And, and the standard that is established there for Ezra um, is to, uh, to submit to the king as long as it does not ask him to rebel against his God. And that's where Ezra is sitting. But as we, as we read through, and I'm not going to read through uh, Artaxerxes' letter that he gives to Ezra. He tells Ezra he can have anything he wants. He says, anything, if you find anything uh, that you, you need, um, all the silver, verse 16, all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province, the freewill offerings of the people vowed willingly for the house, with this money you shall with diligence buy. And the king just basically says to Ezra, whatever you need, in order to stabilize these people who are your people, who worship in Jerusalem, whatever you need from my coffers, you need protection on your caravan, whatever you need, you just let us know, we will give it to you. And he gives Ezra basically a blank check. He says, if you're walking through and you need something, you just let my governors know and they will give it to you. So Ezra is going to make this journey um, with the blessing of the king, with all everything that's going on. Um, he says in verse 25, and I know I'm, I'm jumping through real quick, but in verse 25 he says, You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, you appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province, all such as know the laws of your God. He says, look, Ezra, I trust you so much that I, I'm willing to let you pick the judges. I'm willing to let you choose how the law is executed in this province. Whoever will not bear the law of your, of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him. Now, this isn't quite, if you remember uh, last week, I think it was, we talked about how Darius, he threatened anybody that tried to stop the building of the house, they were to, be, they were to take a, a post from the guy's house and impale him upon it. Xerxes isn't, Artaxerxes isn't quite that extreme, um, but he still says, you need to, everybody needs to listen to you. And then we pick up with Ezra. In verse 27, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. So this is Ezra's words. Who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on him, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So Ezra is a qualified leader, but Ezra is a man with a plan. He's not just going to go off without thinking about what he's doing. He's not going to say, great, the king has given me all the permission in the world. He's going to be a wise steward of the authority that has been invested in him both by God and man. 
And so he says, let's put together some leading men. Let's get some guys that can help out. In verse, chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, these are the heads of their father's houses. Here's a list of all the men that he gathers to go with him. And in verse 15, it says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava. So this is on the edge of their, their land. All right. Um, Al-Yahud, the, the Jewish town. He says, um, he says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava. So before he leaves, um, and there we camped three days. Now this is the leadership equivalent of, did everybody go to the bathroom before we start this road trip? He wants to make sure everybody is ready, that he's got all the pieces in place. And as I reviewed the people and the priests, I found that there were no sons of Levi. And so I sent uh, for Eliezer and Ariel. See, my daughter, there she is. Um, uh, and uh, he sends for all these Levites, and he says, he says I need you guys to come with me. Right? And he sits there and he waits for them to come. In fact, there's even a guy uh, who will later play in, in verse 18, uh, there's a guy by the name of Sherebiah, um, who Ezra calls a man of discretion, a man of discernment, a man of wisdom, um, who, can, uh, who can handle some of the stuff, kind of a second man um, to lead the Levites. And then in verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, uh, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed, not the best translation, but I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. It's more the idea of being hesitant. Since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. So Ezra, qualified leader, got a plan. He's going to be heading back to, uh, to uh, Jerusalem for one purpose and one purpose alone, to teach the law, the Torah. He's a scribe. He's a Torah scholar. He's got the blessing of the king. But he's got this plan. And at the river Ahava, the first thing he does um, is uh, that... Although he first thing he does is he assembles the team of people that he needs. He assesses the weaknesses of the team and he fixes them before he leaves. And then thirdly, um, as he prepares, he, he's willing to humble himself before God. So this is kind of a template, and you can take this and apply it however you want, but it's a great template for, for Christian leadership. That you, 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 you assemble a team, you assess your needs, you address those needs, right? and then you humble yourself before God before you go. Uh, I, I, never, I, I will never forget a piece of, of, of wisdom that was shared to me at one point um, about the process of leading a small church. Uh, what, I, what I tend to call an intimate worship gathering or an intimate, uh, in, intimate congregation. Churches under 200. Um, and, and somebody said to me, they, they said very, very succinctly two things. Um, the first one being, the Holy Spirit didn't show up when you do. And the second one being, there's always next Sunday. And if there isn't, that's better. You think about that for a second. 
Um, the idea being, the idea being that just because you're the leader doesn't mean that you're the only one who's gifted. And the second piece being, just because you have an idea doesn't mean it needs to happen right now. That that, that God is going to build a process for you in your leadership to be able to lead effectively, but you've got to be patient at the river of Hava. You've got to make sure you've got not just all the heads of the households, but also the Levites, and that you humble yourself before God before you launch out. Those of you that have been with us for a while, you, you could probably recount numbers of times, hopefully a few, um, where we went off before we were ready and we wound up having to back up. But then also, hopefully, a whole lot more of processes where people really wanted things to move faster, but we made sure we had all the ducks in a row before we took the step, and it wound up being the wiser part. Now, there's room for, for making decisions on the, on the fly. There's, there's room and space for, hey, we've got to decide this. Um, you, you decide which exit you're going to take, hopefully before the trip. Right before you get in the car, you know which exit you're supposed to go. Now I know now that GPS exists, you just wait until Siri tells you to turn. But back in the day, you used to take a paper map out and decide which exit you were going to take, and and depending which state you were driving through, those numbers may or may not be correct. I'm looking at you, West Virginia. Um, but uh, the there there was there was a you had a plan, but when you got to that exit. There were a lot of instant decisions you had to make in order sometimes to get to that exit ramp. There was always, if you're driving through Massachusetts, there's always that threat of that other person employing the lane to the right of the actual lanes. Um, and you have to make decisions based on what's going on. All right? There are instant decisions that have to be made. Yesterday, Ariel was driving to work. Um, and I was in the passenger side with her because she's still doing her driving hours, and we were on the Everett Turnpike, and we were in the middle lane, and she was driving the speed limit because that's what Ariel does. That's the law. And um, she, she, was driving, she was driving, and I kid you not. Now, now Ariel, is, Ariel is 16. She's still learning to drive. She's, she's a very good driver, but, you know, I'm dad, and she's not up to my standards quite yet. Um, but she's getting there. She's further ahead than her, mo- her mother. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> so not really, not really, not really. But anyway, so Ariel's driving, she's in the middle of the lane, and I, I honestly, I have no idea where these guys came from, but Ariel will tell you, there were two cars that came past us in the left lane, and if the front car was not doing over 100 miles an hour, I don't know how fast he was going. He shot past us like he had been fired from a, a cannon. Ariel, in that moment, we both went, oh! <laughs> but here's the thing. In that moment, Ariel made the decision not to take her, her, her eyes off of the road, not to, to suddenly jerk the steering wheel, not to slam on the brakes, to proceed as she was. Now, she knew where she was going because I was telling her. She still works on north and south and those things. But she knew where she was going, but she had to make an instant decision whether to allow that to freak her out or not or to just keep going. And she did a great job, even though we both went, what is wrong with those people? And we rejoiced when further up the road, she didn't see this, but I saw it because I was checking. Um, Further up the road, somebody else saw them doing that, and they spread out across the road to stop them. All right, and slow them down, and boy, were they not happy. 
right? But, but the fact is, I mean, they were, that was dangerous. And my, my daughter made the right choice. Now, she could make all the plans in the world, but, you know, she had to make that instant decision. But if you don't make the plans at the beginning, what's the basis for your, instant deci- for your momentary decisions? You, you're, you're, you can either be guided by the moment or you can be guided by the plan. And Ezra decides to be guided by the plan. And although he operates within the kingdom, he's got the favor of the king, the king is going to give him... I want you to notice something, and there, there's some practical application to this that I'll let you make. Although he's within the kingdom, he's not dependent upon it. He chooses, he chooses not to take the offer of protection from the king and instead trust his God. That's one of the reasons I don't like the translation that's in our Bibles. This is ashamed. It's much more that he was hesitant. He, he didn't want to accept the help of the king. And think about this. Think about this. It's, the issue is never when you let a good king help you. It's that once you open the door for a good king, a bad king can walk through. And Ezra knows if he accepts help from Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes is going to want something in return. Because Artaxerxes is not a part of the covenant. He doesn't know what's going on in Ezra. Although he's chosen, and it, and it was within his rights as an emissary of the king to accept this guard from the king. He chooses to trust in God. Now, he's not stupid when he does it. You'll notice he just is like, well, I'm just going to trust God for that. And then he is, so we fasted and implored our God for this. He's like, I wasn't taking this for chance. I was just making sure, because if God wanted us to take the armed guards, take the armed guards. But he makes the whole trip. It's a four-month trip he takes, and he winds up in Jerusalem, and nothing happens. He's able to get there and do his thing. And Ezra's job when he gets there, and we're going to get into what Ezra's job when he gets there was, but Ezra's job when he gets there is different from the other leaders. Zerubbabel, who's in Ezra 1 through 6, he's the leader in, in Ezra 1 through 6, his job was to build the temple. And he built the temple, laid the foundations, built the walls, built the temple. But you need to know something about that temple. There was no ark in that temple. There was no glory of God, what was called the Shekinah, the, the, the cloud that descended on the temple and the tabernacle when God was present there. It's gone. So Zerubbabel builds a temple, but there's no glory. There's no ark. It's just a, it's just a monument, basically. It's, a, it's an empty house. In fact, years later, the Roman general Pompey, when the Romans took over uh, Judea, uh, Pompey insisted on seeing the Holy of Holies because he wanted to know what the God that the Jews had worshipped for so long looked like. And he was shocked when he went into the Holy of Holies, and there was nothing there. He called them ignorant fools. Worship a God that doesn't have an image. How dare they? Anyway, um, Nehemiah, who comes after Ezra, he's going to build a wall around Jerusalem. But he's not going to build a kingdom. He's not going to build an army. He's just going to build a wall. And that temple and that wall, they're useful. But Ezra's job is to build the people. See, his plan is not to build a wall or to build a temple or to build an altar or any of those things. His plan is to come to this place and teach the people the law of God. That's what he's going to do. His job is to build a people because 
temple can be destroyed. A country can fall. A wall can be built and be destroyed. Nothing is permanent about the things that we build as human beings. Church buildings rise and fall. Congregations rise and fall. Pastors rise and fall. But a people devoted to their God, and not just saying they were devoted to their God, but devoted to their God in the sense that they knew what their God had said to them, and were submitted to it. You don't need a temple for that. You don't need a wall for that. You don't need a kingdom for that. You don't need an army for that. You don't need Shekinah glory descending from heaven for that. You don't need an Ark of the Covenant for that. And it can endure no matter what. I would submit to you that every time God's people took their focus off being his people who knew his word and put it on his people who had this land or this, his people who had this temple, his people who had this wall, this people that had this country, every time they took that focus off of being his people with his word and made it about something else, inevitably they fall. I'm about to say something that my wife told me not to say. The church does not need America to thrive. The church does not need a Republican president. The church does not need power in the legislature. The church does not need a constitution to guarantee our rights and freedoms because we are not citizens of the kingdoms of earth. We are resident aliens called to the purposes of the kingdom of God. And right now, in America... There are heartbroken Christians, and I get it if your political views lined up with one party and the other, but right now there are heartbroken Christians that think that because one rich white guy beat another rich white guy, the kingdom is going the, 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 the kingdom is threatened. The church was birthed in the Roman Empire. Ezra served in the Persian Empire. We took the language of the conquering Greeks and it became the language of the New Testament. The church was forged in the gladiatorial arenas. The church was formed in the persecution of the religious and the powerful. It doesn't matter who sits on the White House. On the White House? In the White House. Good, bad, or indifferent. We're the church of God. And we have a mission. And that mission is not dependent upon the politics of the environment around us. 
The mission is to be the people of God committed to the word of God sharing the gospel of God. And if they put guns to our heads, we still do it. And if they enthrone us, we still do it. And if they laugh at us, we still do it. Because we're not dependent on the, the, the benefits of the kings. We're a part of Persia. We're a part of Rome. But we're not subservient to them. We're not dependent upon them. The question we will always have to ask is not, will this destroy the church? Will this stop the gospel? But how does the church continue? How do we thrive? How do we live? How do we continue to serve our God no matter where we are? Do you know that the vast majority of the church in the world right now worships against the will of the governments they are a part of? We are extraordinarily blessed to be blessed, blessed to be born and live in a country with all the extraordinary things that America has. But we are not bound by it. The question is what's happening isn't the question is not what is happening that's going to uh, destroy the church but the question is how will the church endure Either we believe or we don't Either we live and serve based on the power of God or we don't. That's the reality. That's the truth. Now, some of you are applauding the, the, the winner of the presidential election. Some of you are grieving. Some of you don't care. Honestly, while we watch it and we focus on it, we pay attention to it, But getting control of the government was never the purpose of God. It's to build, like Ezra said, a people of God. I have a giant red note in the middle of my notes that says, don't be political. (laughs) It was written by me. But the reality is, this is God we're talking about. Who are we afraid of when we stand with him? And Ezra is going to tell the people of Israel eventually in the course of this course, he's going to say to them, you are God's people. You do what he calls you to do, no matter what the world around you looks like, no matter how it changes, no matter how it alters. COVID's not going to bring us down. Presidential elections, senatorial elections, laws, Supreme Court justices, all of those things, not going to bring us down. Because we're here for Christ and Him alone. Would you join me in a word of prayer?
Jesus, all we are is because of you. We get riled up about the affairs of this world because we're humans and we interact with it on a regular daily basis and we don't have your perspective on everything that's going on. And Lord, sometimes things look great and sometimes things look terrible and sometimes things look like they could go either way on the turn of a dime. Help us like Ezra to be, to plan our path, to walk our path, to be a part of this world without being subservient and dependent upon it, to be your people and your people alone. Lord, those who are discouraged, Lord, may your spirit use your friends and family of this church to lift them up. For those who are um, rejoicing, may we rejoice with them. With those who are weeping, may we weep with them. But in all things, may we be your people and lift up your son. We pray this in Jesus' name.